We're back. It's me, your favorite bald dude, Jeremy Kirkland. How you doing? You're listening to Blamo. Okay, first off, I'm in a bit of a mood, but I always like to record these the night before the episode drops. I just sit and I go, but I swear to God, I feel like everyone I know right now is sick or their kids are sick or they're all sick together. Also, yours truly is a little bit sick. Well, I'm not that sick, but man, my kids, my kids are sick. Jeez Louise. They're bumping around with stuffy noses. Your boy is losing it, I swear. But you know what? I'm an optimistic guy. My weekend wasn't too bad. I'm quite proud of myself. I hope everyone had a, had a wonderful weekend. But I am very proud of myself because I fixed <laughs> I fixed my dryer. <laughs> That's right. I might have nearly cut my thumb off. But hey, I took a bunch of screws out. I cleaned a bunch of things. I watched a YouTube video. Bam. Dry clothes. Clean clothes. They're dry. Dryer works. Everything's amazing. I feel good. Has anyone ever done that? Like you have that thing where, I don't know, I am, um, I don't know the right word to use, but I'm like home management disinclined, disadvantaged. I don't know. I don't know the word to say, but I suck at doing things around the house in terms of fixing stuff. I can clean with the best of them, but I don't know how to fix anything. Uh, and that's fine because YouTube is amazing <laughs> and uh, no free ads for YouTube, but I swear to God, I learned, you know, I'm fixing drywall and I'm fixing, I'm fixing my dryer. So dry things, anything with dry in front of it, I can fix it. Let's go. Anywho, enough of that. Mac Barnett is on the pod this week. I love this guy. He's a New York Times bestselling author and his works have sold, I had to double check this, over 4 million copies of his incredible books worldwide. If you're a parent, you've probably read his books dozens, maybe hundreds of times to your kids. I certainly have. Um, he's the executive producer and writer of the brand new series, Shape Island on Apple TV+. And yes, he is a fellow Johns enthusiast, a.k.a. the man loves his clothes. Oh, I'm so glad he's here this week. Mac and I discuss his career, why he chose to be a children's book author, what he learned from David Foster Wallace, how he got into clothes, how many tuxedos does one need, we debate. Wearing two watches and his new show, Shape Island on Apple TV+. Dive in. Here we go. I'm surprised that I, you, you fit me in on the, the Apple TV premiere day. This, is, this has got to be the biggest, you know, far-reaching project it you've is, ever done. It is. It's surprising. No? Like, it was, it's weird. Uh, it, I, as it was launching, like, the difference in scale kind of became, became clear. Uh, this isn't your first rodeo with, like, making things for the world. I mean, I, I had thought that you did just, like, younger kids' books. But you, there's, how many books have you done? Like, 40? 50? 55, I think. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, all, and they're all, they are all kids' books, but everywhere from younger books that, you know, you can start reading to kids whenever, but, but three- or four-year-olds, they're probably starting to really mean something to those kids um, and then up through ten or eleven, and then once they once they once they hit middle school, I, I don't know what to, I don't know what to say to them anymore. Yeah, there's nothing, no goosebumps. I have no useful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I remember my heart broke when I found out that R.L. Stein was Bob Stein, and he's just like a dude who like goes <sighs> to the McDonald's drive-through. It's true, he does go to the McDonald's drive-through. However, having seen <laughs> him around some conferences, uh, and again, it is a little disappointing to see R.L. Stein at like a Mary convention center uh, as well it's maybe not the creepiest context but he is always wearing all black and and does have a presence to him he he i think he starts to to remystify himself in the in the oh. basement of marriott's 
Okay. That's that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, go Bob. <laughs> Um, well, we'll, we're going to chat about, obviously about the new Apple TV show, but also, um, a bit about your, your background, the Johns enthusiast. It's funny because a handful of people have messaged me in the past that were like, yo, you got to talk to Mac Barnett because he's like a dope dude that lives in the real world, but is also super into clothes versus all of us. We're into clothes, but kind of have no choice because it's how we're making a living. I feel like I'm yeah, it's an honor to be here. I like I do feel like I I I love clothes. I have my if not my nose pressed up against the glass looking at all of you, at least two palms on the glass at all times. Uh but it's nice yeah. to be here as a little bit of an outsider uh cuz cuz I'm a huge fan. Yeah. I love the world, but I also especially I'm a huge fan of you, Jeremy, of of like of the of the way you oh, talk wow. and cover this stuff. So thank you. I, I'm I'm very flattered. I I will send you your, your royalty check after this. Thank you. <laughs> after <laughs> after our chat. Mission mission accomplished. Well, that was that's our show. Um yeah. but I mean you have like a serious pedigree and I and I do want to talk a bit about like writing children's books in general because that especially as a parent. Do you have kids? Okay. I have a 20 month old. Uh so so for oh. most of my career writing kids books I I haven't had kids. Yeah. So okay, wait. So how how do you get into kids books without having kids? That might sound yeah, somewhat I, of a lewd question. No. So I I I always like I always wanted to be a writer uh from the time I was a little kid because I just loved books and I loved picture books. And uh my mom, I grew up it was, it was just me and my mom and uh she didn't have a lot of money for books. Books are expensive. They still are expensive. So she would get all our books at uh at yard sales. And right. that sort of meant that I grew up with uh, picture books from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, sort of the previous generation and the generation before that's picture books. Uh, yeah. it's all, she also bought all my clothes from yard sales. So I, I dressed from the same era. And I will say, it was a good moment. It was a good time for, for American picture books and American clothing. I, I got some fits off as a little kid too. And, <laughs> and uh, some, good, some good saddle shoes and sailor suits, which, you know, uh, I think it. I think it's a good look. But the books, those books, starting starting in the '40s and then really in the '60s and '70s, uh, was a, was an exciting time for picture books, and those books always stuck with me. Um, so as I, I, you know, growing up, I knew I wanted to write. I didn't know what kind of writing I wanted to do: journalism, poetry. You know, if you love writing, it, it, it's sort of it takes sometimes a little while to figure out that that that's only the first step that that you have to connect this skill, this craft of writing to something else that you care about or it means anything. Uh, and all of my jobs were always with kids. Uh, and so telling stories to those kids, one day I was like, this is it. This is my audience. This is actually, this is who I want to write stories for. You had talked about how writing is basically like the first step. And is that just because it's such a somewhat large playing field and like that there's so many different mediums of writing or it's like, and some people like you read their writing and it's their own therapy and other stuff. There's some sort of what feels like a higher calling or power or something that's coming to it or what? Yeah, I think that I think that writing to me, writing without there, there's sort of two things. There's the passion for the subject. There, there's what you're writing about, um, mm-hmm. and then and then there's the skill of actually writing. 
of, of being able to hold an audience's attention. And that can be on the sentence level, on, on a story level, but it, it's rhetoric, basically, right? It's, it's taking care of your audience, keeping them interested. Um, but if you don't have something to plug that into, it's, it's like a nice car without an engine. Um, and so even like, even there are people who, who write in ways, you know, what you're saying, like writing is therapy for them, uh, confessional writing. Some of that stuff is really compelling. If somebody is a good writer, they can plug that into that, that internal well and, and write something very compelling. Uh, a clumsy piece of confessional writing can be really embarrassing, but a, a clumsy piece of any kind of writing, is, even if it's connected to something we care about, it's just going to lie there inert on the page. So you have to get good at both of those things. And yeah, I would just sort of, I was always jumping around uh, on on the kind of writing I wanted to do, the kind of reading I always loved. Like I always, I, I love books that are sort of weird, experimental, uh, and and uh, kind of require work from me as as a reader. Like and what's an example of that? So I think I, I just, like, I love experimental fiction. I, I studied, uh, like, <laughs> I studied difficult poetry in college. That was what, like my special, I was an English major who studied yeah, difficult you, you poetry. You studied under DF Dubs, right? I did. I think, yeah, David Foster Wallace was uh, taught writing at, uh, at Pomona College where I went to school and I took a fiction class with him and a nonfiction class. He's a great example of somebody who I think uh, is, is it's, he's a beautiful writer, but he requires work from the reader too. He wants the reader involved in figuring out what a story means. And kids, I think we think of kids as like, oh, well, you know, they're not as smart as we are. They're going to have more trouble. If, if something, if I don't get a story, then a kid's definitely not going to get a story. But kids' brains are so much more flexible, so much more adaptable. They they don't have preconceived notions about how stories work. And also, when kids don't understand something, they don't feel dumb. You know, adults, if we read something we don't understand, a story that doesn't make it, it makes sense to us, that has a weird ending that makes us uncomfortable, we'll push that thing aside because it makes us feel like an idiot, right? Like, oh, I, I, I don't understand this. And 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 we just, we don't want to think about it. Or we blame it. We say like, oh, it's, it, this, is, this is boring or obtuse or there's too high a wall around it. Kids are walking around constantly not understanding stuff and, and working really hard to understand them. That is a kid's brain. Uh, and that makes them great readers of especially literary fiction, fiction that requires work from the reader to understand. And so I think we get it 100% backwards that we think like, well, I didn't get this, so there's no way my kid would. Actually, your kid may have a way easier time figuring out what that story means than, than you do as an adult. And that's really exciting. Yeah, I think writing for kids or in, in Anything for children in general is like a much higher calling because the, in a weird way, I mean, you mentioned that like kids aren't bothered by not getting something or whatever. Like, yeah, like I think it's because shame doesn't really exist yet, right? Like that, that yeah. more comes from your parents, <laughs> your parents totally. being like, you should have done this by now or whatever. Yeah, yeah. There's no shame in children. It's, it's, there's, it's joy uh, at all times. It's beautiful. Even social shame and social stigma, like we'll be like reading, uh, stories out loud to kids in, in when we go out on book tour and we'll be like in a gymnasium in Texas and there'll be 600 kids on the floor and we'll just be reading them like the, the three Billy Goats gruff. And 
if a kid gets scared of the troll in that book, like kids will get scared and start sobbing, just weeping in the front row because they're so scared. And there's no shame to those tears. And like the kids next to them are like, cool, yeah, like eh, Sam's crying again. And it's like, like none of if I like I would just be looking around, who's looking at me cry? Who? Oh no, am I revealing too much of myself? Kids are just existing in this world as just these like emotional beings plugged into these these massive brains it's it's incredible so where does that tie in with you and the and the fact that like you choose the vertical of kids because i think for me when i think of the books that have changed my life um 99 of them are books that i experienced as like an adolescent you know yeah. and some of them are bad books like i think the giver is a effed up book i think hatchet <laughs> is an effed up book i think most dr seuss is kind of effed up um there's but- hatchet hatchet is there there's hatchet's amazing hatchet hatchet is what a book and that that's is, a Gary Paulson book about the kid it's Gary for Paulson. folks who don't know yeah, it, yeah he's in a plane crash and he basically lives off the land with his little shitty hatchet and yeah. gets food poisoning and finds an airplane and it's basically like a survival book of a young boy uh sorry go yeah. ahead no I yeah so it's Gary Paulson is the author uh and yeah it is it's like it's a survival book slash like survivalist book survivalist early survivalist handbook <laughs> uh yeah and there is there I was at a school library that had uh, one of those posters, like a promotional poster uh, that you would put on the wall to say, like, here are some of your favorite authors, right? And uh, very author style headshots, very 90s headshots, close up, bright colors uh, of authors, like uh, chin on hand, smiling, the, the, the yeah. friendly smile for kids. And, and so there were like two up of that. And then the third one was Gary Paulson. And it just said Gary Paulson. And then the picture was taken from like 20 yards away in a forest Gary Paulson is just standing among trees huge beard plaid shirt jeans and he just has an axe next to him he is just holding an axe and it's so it rules so hard it's great (laughs) ah and you just think about the kids like looking at those pictures and and look maybe the first two pictures are good for a certain kind of kid the the uh-huh. the hand on chin I'm your friendly neighborhood author but yeah. for another kid you need that third thing that like who is that one that that guy knows some things yeah so you find so what makes you choose the kid stuff I mean, because again, I feel like it's the it's the highest it's the highest art form. I think that I think I'm really inspired by the audience. They they are kids are like the only audience I can count on giving a story as much thought and care as I'm putting into it as mm-hmm. the writer. If if I'm hiding a little detail or, or connecting two weird things across pages, I know that that there are going to be kids who find that 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 newness. I think that if an author's job is to sit and, and think about big questions and, you know, like, what is love? What is death? What happens yeah. after we die? Why do bad things happen in the world? Uh, unfairness, justice. The, these are things that are, like, of primary consideration for kids, too, right? Like, if you hang around kids, they're always asking you hard questions uh, about the world. And and so I just feel like the job of a writer and the job of a kid are, are very similar. We just sit there and, and try to try to explore these big questions uh yeah yeah i i and i just you know probably i've always known at least how i like to talk to kids and i've worked with kids in all kinds of ways i used to run a non 
nonprofit that taught writing to kids. I was a camp counselor. And that like that hand on chin author photo way was never my way. The the sing songy way, the 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 voice goes up like ten octaves and you say, like, <laughs> what do you be wanna be when you grow up, Jimmy? Like that. And I'm sorry, right. I probably blew out your mic doing my impression of a terrible no. uncle at Thanksgiving. But uh yeah, that has always, since I was a kid, made me viscerally angry. And and I think that the desire to talk to kids in a different way, uh, to to make stuff that respects them, that's just really important to me too. Yeah. Did you read books that you felt when you were younger that were like, when you think of like books that you read when you were younger that like this is something I still revisit now, like yeah. what would it be? Uh, I love I love the work of Margaret Wise Brown. So she famously wrote Goodnight Moon, but yeah. she wrote over a hundred books and is just this deeply weird experimental poet who just happened to write her poetry for kids. James Marshall, I don't know if you know his stuff. He did George and Martha uh, and and they're about two hippos. Uh, really funny stuff. He is like the funniest, just the, the funniest person in picture books, I think. And I, I just remember like reading those books, my mom reading them to me and tears rolling down her face as she was reading this thing. She's laughing so hard. And I was also laughing so hard and that connection of like oh man my mom who is so funny thinks this book which was written for me a kid she also thinks it's funny that sense of validation just like this is like we both are laughing at the same jokes that's a huge deal uh arnold lobel the frog and toad stuff uh that is oh i remember as, yeah 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 <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. There's books that I, so I have two kids and the reason why also I'm so fascinated by kids books more than ever is one, because I read, I've read a lot of books that have been important in my life, but I can't, you know, there are a lot of the kids books that I've read. I've read 50 times, a hundred times. Like I'm not even yep. kidding to where there are books that I have memorized. Like, um, I mean, geez, like, uh, the hippos and the belly buttons and like all these, all these things that like I have memorized because I would read them every night to my kids and also finding enjoyment in it or finding like witty stuff in there. But there's stuff that like I remember reading Baron Stainbear's books as a kid. And as an adult reading them, I actually think they're really poorly written. They're the most run on yeah. sentence books I've ever read in my life. And like too it, many like, words trying, on a page. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that and then but like some books um, like Mercer Mayer, Little Critter. Yeah. Those books slap like uh, we, we found For some sure. older books like there's there's crazy, crazy good stuff in there. And then obviously now we're reading a bunch of your books and the one that my that my daughter so she's five that she loves to read and I think um, there's all these things in there that she's catching that I didn't is about I'm forgetting the title but it's about the little girl who has the never ending yarn extra yarn yeah yeah, yeah it's it's fucking it's crazy it's the, it's one of the craziest books because and I'll just like kind of fan out for here so she likes she loves to make stuff she loves to draw she you know she takes after her mom like she loves to explore um, crafts you know like she loves um like Gabby's dollhouse and and things with that involve her making things but um she always runs out of stuff you know and we have to go get more and so this book is like it's literally I never even put this together like it's this dream come true and obviously in the book you know spoiler alert someone else wants to try to get this girl's never ending yarn they try to get it it doesn't work they get upset the girl gets her yarn back like justice is served and like I read that and I was like oh that's that's like a cute story but she I was like well Harry why do you like the story so much and she's like well because you know, something bad happens, but she's okay. And then she gets all of her stuff back and she's able to keep making stuff for other people. And that was the other thing is she ends on like the fact that she can make that, that this, 
in a weird way, it seems like a selfish endeavor because she has all of this stuff to hers and it only belongs to her and she has all the yarn. But the entire time, all she does is is give this away. She makes things for other people. And like, it's the fact that like she pulled this sort of almost beautiful, generous, somewhat utopian, you know, joy out of this story. And also that there's this like sense of justice and, and forgiveness and all these things in the book. Like I was like, oh my God, I was like, kids books. I mean, there's just a weight in them that I, I think is the most most underrated way of, of, of life. Like, so, I mean, I'm kind of yeah. getting a little crazy here, but like, no, that I, book, no, that means a lot to hear. I think that we feel that way too, as, as people who make them, especially, um, you know, I've been writing since before I had kids, but just always thought that there was, that there was this depth to picture books. And I think picture books are so interesting too, for, for a lot of people. Sorry, they're, what makes a picture read... book, a picture book, excuse so my So a picture ignorance. book would be, no, of course, it's like, it's short text, usually about like 32 pages, 32 to 48 pages um, and uh, words and pictures on every page. Sometimes they're just oh. only pictures. But, you know, like uh, okay. Where the Wild Things Are is a picture book. Extra Yarn, which you mentioned, is a picture book. As opposed to a novel where the, the balance is more toward words. It's just mostly prose. Okay, yeah, yeah, pictures. yeah. So picture books are those books that, like, typically, you know, if, if you're a parent, you're going to be reading a picture book or five picture books at bedtime. And yep. picture books are read a lot of the time by adults to kids, uh, which is really cool. A lot of kids read novels by themselves uh, as they as they're growing. The, the chapter books are going to be books that they're just reading by themselves. But uh, but a picture book is sort of a, a lot of times a family event. And I think that even if you're a big reader, if you have young kids, it can be hard to find time to read. So these are the books that you're reading. They are they are sort of the the pieces of art that that families are coming into contact with. And the fact that there are you know ideally hopefully we're writing something that doesn't just have value to the kid, but does have value to that adult who's who's reading the story. So hearing that you as a dad are, are, are reading Extra Yarn, your daughter's finding this meaning, she's telling you about it, and that's deepening your understanding of it. That is, that's so cool. We want to make something that that uh, can can be like nourishing to, to your entire family, ideally, you know? Um, yeah. And not not the books I mean, that you like, that you're hiding under the bed because you can't, you can't stand reading them one more time. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, there are books that she, so we go to the library all the time mm-hmm. and we live next to, you know, this really great library. There's tons of stuff there. Um, it's weird because, so, you know, to talk about things that I assume someone's going to want me to mention anyway. So I live in Missouri, which is banning books. I'll be clear. Yeah. Um, but this library, the way that this stuff is set up, like they don't, as far as I'm aware, they have everything, you know, and the stuff that, um, my daughter's reading is very, um, you know, th- she's brought home a bunch of books that are about um, empowerment. And there's, it's not necessarily, there's a book that's like, oh, like embracing whatever gender. But, you know, she she likes this book about this, like ballerinas, a bunch of these kids that are ballerinas. She's, you know, a five-year-old and is very like, I love princess and ballerina sort of stuff. And a bunch of the ballerinas are boys, you know? And yeah. I'm like, this is in there. And so like the, all these books that she's reading are like, are very like great. And there's all these sorts of empowerment things that she's learning and she's understanding. And so we go there and we'll get a few of these books. And some of the books that she gets, um, they're bad only in the sense that they're just like dull. Like it reminds me of like an elf, um, you know, the whole, like there's somebody in New York or whatever. There's like the James Conn yeah. character who's like, it doesn't matter if it doesn't end. So Harriet's grabbed some of these books that I've read and are like, these are just not well written and they're not, you know. And so a part of me has been like, I think if, if anyone's going to like ban books or get upset about books, which trust me, I'm all for, but they're, they 
they should just be for books that like aren't written well or look like some sort of like royalty <laughs> cash, you know, thing where it's, I mean, again, like there are, if I read you the book, you would be like, well, what happens between three and four? It's like someone took pages out. And the yeah. crazy thing is my daughter totally picks up on him. She's like, how, why did they, you know, where, where's the shoes? How does she fall into the, you know, the closet, all this stuff. Like it's, so I just, I say that in the sense that like, there's just so much work in this. I think you put you put your finger right on it, which is I think that, you know, first of all, I think some people do put less work into kids books because they think they're just for kids. And that to me is, yeah. is the biggest blasphemy. But also there's this central question going back to the start of telling stories to kids. It's like, are we supposed to be teaching them lessons or telling them stories? Um, and sort of simplistically didactic picture books that are just trying to instill some lesson, inscribe a moral onto a kid's brain and don't care about the story. Everything is just in service to a message. That's a different That's a different beast from a story, which is hopefully going to have like a real moral question to it and, and some sort of like beating heart. But it, stories we use to communicate truths that can't be summed up in, in a single sentence, right? And, and right. That's, that's the power of a story. Um, and I think that, that there, are, there are people who, who believe that, that a kid's book should be teaching kids a good lesson. Uh, my books don't do that, at least not in a clear way. And and uh, so I think that that you know, it kids are kids are lectured at constantly. And of course, there are times where we should be teaching kids, but but stories can do something different. They can get to a to a deeper place. And uh, yeah, I think you know a lot of people who think that kids' books should just be uh, <laughs> teaching a lesson think that there's something sort of like morally dubious about a story that doesn't do that, and they don't think that those books should exist. For me, like, I I want, I, I think children's literature should have everything that, that literature for adults does. All kinds of different genres. It should have good books. It should have bad books. Uh, but we need to make a place for, for real storytelling there because kids need this stuff. Yeah. And I think especially as you get, as you get older, uh, I mean, and I mean older in the sense that like you recognize pain, you recognize like loss, like grief, I think is, yep. is the most, um, I think it's, the, it's by far are uh, the most powerful form of, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm watching my Yeah, my man, daughter. and grief can come in real young for kids, right? Yeah. We, we of course, yes. like, I think we do have this mammalian instinct that we want to make kids happy and protect them. And of course we do and we should, but the world is hard and, and bad things can happen and sad things can happen and, and kids can have all kinds of, of dark emotions. They can lose people close to them uh, at a very young age. And I think that if you don't recognize that stuff, if you don't put that as part part of the mix into into books not every book necessarily but if you don't have books that acknowledge those those darker parts of of human life and and being a child, then kids can't find that stuff in the books they read. And, and they're either going to think that there's something wrong with books because this art form doesn't actually reflect their emotional life. Or they're even worse, they're going to think that there's something wrong with them for feeling this way uh, because they have all these feelings that are upsetting or or worrying or frustrating or shameful. Uh, and, and, and that sense of shame in your own feelings is, is going to be enhanced by, by not finding 
writing those feelings in books. Yeah. If everything is just chirpy and sing-songy and, and happy bunnies, then then we're not serving a, emotional lives of kids, you know? Yeah. Like, I, I'm watching my daughter now. So my my dad's health is pretty bad. Um, yeah. And he's he's um, he's at a home. He, he can't really speak anymore. He yeah. obviously can't walk. He kind of drools on himself. And, um, you know, and then she's also, she has a relationship with my, my father-in-law, my wife's father, who is in really good shape, you know, I mean, just, just to- totally polar opposite. And, you know, for me, I was always like, well, I don't know how to have this discussion with her to tell her that, you know, Papa is in this sort of shape and how do I do this? And in a weird way... <laughs> Like some of the books like helped me out of some of these parenting yeah. things because she's reading things about things that happen or a dog that gets lost or or mm-hmm. just like a, a, a tiny bit of of pain and, and emotional trauma, for lack of a better term. And it's been interesting because, you know, and I'm sure this will hit you, too, because like 20 months, which is what you had said, you're, you're yeah. b- boy or girl. Uh, 20 year, 20 month boy. Yeah. OK. His name is Rafe. R-A-F-E. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. One of the greatest actors of all time. Um, but, uh, there's, there's like a part there that like my, my kid's personality really came out at four and five. There's, there's the rebellion and the goofiness at like two and three, Mm -hmm. but now there's a specific choice to how they want to express themselves. And there are things that I'm processing and watching her experience that I can't protect her from. And in the, it's, it's made me really re rethink how I do every single aspect of my life. Uh, like professionally and how I provide, but more importantly, how I emotionally provide for her because she's in this changing world. There's, you know, there's all these things. And, you know, from seeing the stuff that she's been witnessing about my dad and the weird way, she's actually pretty okay with all of it. She's not angry about it. She's not, it's just the way it is. And so she, she doesn't, she doesn't have the anger, the baggage that maybe someone else would have. And I attribute 99% of this stuff to, you know, us trying to have conversations, but us also trying to read other situations of people that have it. Like we read a book about a house and a family um, where they get a new house and they're upset that they lose the old house, but they can make memories in the new house. And that happened with us when we lived in New York and she was so upset that we left New York and now we live in this other house, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, it's, it's just been really, really, really beautiful for me to watch her experience these things and to now develop her own personality and taste, um, you know, through basically, yeah, like pictures on paper. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, I think that's, that's the stuff we we want to be, you know, we want to be serving the full emotional life of kids. It's funny you say four and five, too. That was the age. So like when I when I first worked at a summer camp, I always got stuck with the four year olds because nobody wanted them. Mm -hmm. They were too little. It was a it was a sports summer camp for like four to 12 year olds. And nobody like heavyweights. Is there anything in there? (laughs) Yeah, no, this was this was like this was uh, all like affiliated with UC Berkeley professors kids so it was intellectual heavyweights is, is oh, okay. the movie that would be made. little 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 professor kids uh and the four-year-olds, you know, they can't really play sports, so nobody wanted to be with them. But I also can't play sports, like I. So it was perfect. Welcome like I club. was, I was learning things from the four-year-olds. Be like, uh, you know, we they'd say like, okay, now we're gonna learn how to run. And when you're sprinting, you run up on the fronts of your feet. And I had no idea that that was uh, how you how you were supposed to sprint. And and you know, like I told <laughs> my best friend, I was like, did you know when you're sprinting, you you run on the fronts 
of your feet? And he was like, yeah, man, of course. Everybody knows that. Also, like, that's that's why you look so weird when you're running. So it was like, it was a very instructive uh, camp experience. But those four-year-olds, that four-year-old brain of sort of exactly that, coming online as full personalities, being able to have a conversation about the world, but still being so new to the world too. Um, that's huge. And and that was, that was it was that, that four-year-old way of experiencing the world that first made me want to write picture books for kids. Damn. Well, let's, let's jump to the TV stuff because you've just entered the world of actual TV. Yeah. Which, if we're going to get all Fred Rogers, like now, now you're at the highest, the highest level here. Yeah. How did this thing happen? So we, uh, we've made a, a stop motion cartoon. I always say we, John Clausen, an illustrator I work with a lot. He illustrated Extra Yarn and uh, we've done six books together. Uh, yeah, he's an OG. Like, I mean, obviously the Coraline stuff that he was involved in and things yeah. like that. Yeah. very beautiful style. I, it's, I mean, it's his own. Yeah. He, he is one of the best living illustrators of picture books. And it's something his work, uh, it plugs into to this like long tradition of illustration, but it looks really fresh and, and, and like completely of the moment too. Uh, and so we made a book called, uh, three books actually, Triangle, Square, and Circle. And they're just three books about these shapes, um, with eyes. That's just the, that's what characters are. Um, and, uh, these three books are now a stop motion animated series on Apple TV plus. Uh, And it's so bizarre. I don't know how this comes about. It's so today is the day that it's released. So like I was just watching some of it and watching these little guys move around, talk to each other. It's like, it's the culmination of of like two and a half years of actual hard work uh, on this project and like four to five years of, of trying to, to put together a pitch and, and get somebody to make it. Uh, it's it's a totally new and different thing, but hopefully we're bringing that same approach to storytelling of of just being like authentic and honest and 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 also getting a lot of jokes off too. <laughs> well, yeah. So okay, you said two and a half years. Yeah, it was, I think it was two and a half years from the time that we started writing scripts and, and working with Apple on this, um, and then yeah, production is. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it takes a long time with stop. It takes motion a too. long time, yeah, because they're they're moving all the you know it's stop motion. So so there's like a little puppet of a, of a pyramid with eyes, and they yeah. they move the puppet just a, a fraction of a centimeter and take a photograph, and then do that again and again and again. Um, so yeah, that I think that just the production alone uh, was was about twenty months. Jeez, Louise. Yeah, and when you're when you're writing this stuff, like I mean, so I I've I'm a huge Mr. Rogers idiot, but yeah goofball whatever how much of these things were you writing where you go and you look at and you're like okay you know do we how do we make this correct for each audience do you like do you, you probably had a little bit of an advantage given the fact that you've been writing for kids for a long time anyway i think that there was a big part of like we we just have a muscle from standing in front of kids telling them stories out loud you just you sort of know when you have them and when you don't um and so that was very helpful in thinking about how we would make the show um john and i wrote the first three scripts together and then um, once it was in production, uh, we hired a head writer, Ryan Pequin, who is just like an old hand at cartoons, just a very funny and soulful dude uh, who uh, brought in a great crew of writers. So those scripts are being generated. We're looking those over, you know, bringing them all into the spirit of the show, but hopefully like just letting writers go wild and express themselves too. We want to we want to give writers the same liberty that, that we feel like we want as writers. Uh, and then casting the 
thing and doing recording sessions and working with a composer to score these episodes. And then, of course, this this building in Burbank where you've got uh, set dressers and prop makers and and puppet makers uh, and just the all these skilled craftspeople working in miniature to make this thing. And then these animators who are getting these performances out of these, these little puppets. It's such a massive thing to oversee and sort of plug in and try to be useful at, at all different stages. Uh, yeah, it, it was it was really fun. But in terms of approach, what you were saying, like the, I was a big Mr. Rogers kid too. I actually used to like, I had a cardigan that I would put on to watch Mr. Rogers uh, oh, so that we wow. could just both be matching. Yeah. Okay. But even bigger, I think I was a Sesame Street kid. Um, I loved Sesame Street. I still love Sesame Street. We watch, we're watching a lot of uh, old Sesame Street with Rafe now. Uh, we do not watch the new Sesame Street. There's like an awful moment where you go from like 1974 to to 2016, and, and the new stuff comes on. And I, I can't do it. I can't do it. I gotta be. I gotta be in the that old classic you Sesame want the letter, Street you era. You want the four by three I, I experience, love... the 90 minute episodes, none of these 30 minute HBO things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It was an hour. It was an. They they were hour long episodes, and they did a hundred yeah. episodes per season. Uh, like that endeavor from from like 1969 to uh, I think in the, in the 2000s, maybe 2009 or 10, they switched to 30 minutes. But um, there there's like a 25 year run of of just unparalleled television. It's it's wild the people who came together to make that. Uh, and and there's like there's an honesty to the relationships there. Like now I think it's very. You know, it can get a little didactic in, in trying to teach kindness and model kindness all the mm-hmm. time, right? And I, for me, I think that, like, kindness is a big concern of the moment and kindness books and kindness reads and kindness TVs, uh, TV shows. And for me, it's like, that's axiomatic. We all have to agree before we come to the table that it's important to be kind to each other. Kids know that. Adults know that. We all know that. That is actually what we build stories on. And and our stories should be about how hard that actually is in practice. That's what that old Sesame Street gets so right. You know, those sketches will end usually with one character, like a little bit annoyed or unhappy because they've had to make some sacrifices in order to get along with a neighbor. Oscar is just a total pain in the ass, always. <laughs> Cookie Monster is eating people's cookies. Uh, they show that it's like it's very hard to all be on the same page, the exact same page with your neighbors, but that you still value these people. You have affection for them, that, that you know, part of, of living in a cosmopolitan polyphonic society is to actually let everybody have their own voice voice and and those voices aren't always going to blend beautifully like that is so much richer and truer than 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 watching characters just be nice to each other all the time so i like that old stuff and and hopefully we're bringing some of that energy into into shapes yeah also the speed at which those shows were made so um you know when i was younger uh or excuse me when my daughter was younger i put on mr rogers yeah. and she loved it and this is old you know obviously this is super old mr rogers this is like late 60s 70s era stuff and when you look at how long it 
took for Fred Rogers to talk to the audience, to tell them what they were doing that day, it's it's two and a half minutes. Yeah. And you look at what shows are now, even, you know, even something that I think is as great as like Gabby's Dollhouse on Netflix yeah. or um, on Apple TV Plus, there's also, um, I think it's a Henson production show, which is like with oh, the puppets. Oh, Helpsters. And, um, yeah. yeah, Helpsters, right? Mm-hmm. So great stuff, right? To, to stay in the Apple TV world here. Like there's there's a, there's a speed that is, I, I, I don't know what a number would be, but like 10x into which how they establish the show, the day, the characters. And I feel like there was such a, um, such like a, a like an ignorant bliss of how slow things moved on Mr. Rogers and my my daughter and like she she loved it she yeah. absolutely loved it but even now like which you know the new version Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood which is um done by uh, um that woman who also did Blues Clues I mean she's she's a freaking G, legend um, yeah but she uh it's everything is still really fast and yeah. I and I'm like what, what I don't know what happened that all of a sudden the amount of information that needs needed to be transmitted just had to yeah I know I think that like you know and you can do things well fast but you can do things well slow Sesame Street that old Sesame Street is the same way the pace is just like it's so nice and slow and and I love it and it's it's well done and it's engaging and funny I think it's like it goes back to that thing it's like if you don't know how to talk to kids because it's always like it, it can be weird if you're not comfortable doing this and 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 you go over to a friend's house and their kids are there you know what are you gonna do you're gonna you're gonna talk really loud really fast you're gonna make a big facial expression um um, yeah, because you just want to attract their attention, and there can be something really off-putting about that. And and there are some children's TV shows that feel like the equivalent of that panicked adult who doesn't know how to talk to kids. Too noisy, too bright, uh, too frenetic, uh, and it just doesn't come together. Uh, I I'd be really interested to hear what you think, Jeremy. If you watch uh, the Shape Show, Shape Island, it's I, we, we started I it this morning, but oh, uh, cool. she had to go. She had to go to school, so we're uh, we're actually we, going to finish. We were um, looking for like yeah. a little bit of an easier pace on this thing. We wanted we wanted some quiet in between lines. I you know I don't think that we we necessarily got dialed it all the way back to Mr. Rogers' speed, but we kept talking about like <laughs> wanting this to just be sort of uh, like a relaxing and, and calm and warm place to hang out this show, even as like very big dramatic things are happening on stage or even as we're trying to like write some really good tight comedy still like to do it at that easier pace yeah and like if you ever watched I mean as I'm sure you know like there was in the 90s there was this perfect storm of kids shows that I felt like adults really loved too like one of those Animaniacs which (laughs) my mom and I would watch together because I you know there was I remember there was an episode called Woodstock Slappy that was um, Slappy who was the squirrel who um, is like this curmudgeon of a character for folks who haven't seen it. Um, you can find some of the episodes on Hulu, but like, you know, she goes to Woodstock or sorry, Woodstock happens right outside of her tree and all these bands perform and all the bands that performed were obviously bands I had no idea who they were, but it was like The Who and all these things and my mom yeah. was like laughing her ass off and obviously she's annoyed by the music. She does everything she can to um, basically like go hostile on him and destroy Woodstock and it ends with, you know, destruction and that's the end of the episode but like there's there's stuff there where it's like the line of okay like a parent can watch this too and still be entertained there are shows like you know all shots 
towards Coco Melon. I think Coco Melon is the biggest load of shit I've ever seen on television ever. And people love it. I have it blocked on all the stuff. I don't even know think- about Coco Melon. I don't know what this is. No way. You it's know true. about Coco Melon. No, I Please don't. Tell me I, honestly, I live, I live on Sesame Street. That is the only thing. Rafe is unaware that any other television show exists. He thinks that the TV is just Sesame Street. We haven't introduced anything else. What is Coco Melon? Okay. So there's a bunch of Netflix folks that listen to the show and stuff. Coco Melon is such a powerhouse show that they actually often have to omit Coco Melon from streaming data when they're like revealing like what what people are watching. Right, where they're like Stranger Things is the biggest opening we've ever had as a except for episode 84 of Coco Melon. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Coco Melon is and and what it is, I believe someone's going to fact check me. It's basically a um, I think it's a it's a career. Korean show. Um, so it's it's an incredible show. It's all like 3D animated. Um, you know, there's like 150 billion people that have watched this show. It, it basically started as a YouTube thing. It then turned into a bit of a YouTube AI show in the sense that like they were they were watching like what people watched the most and then use that to make other episodes. And I get it. It's, you know, it makes sense on like how people are trying to make television programming, but it's more or less mm-hmm. like drivel. Like I don't think that there's anything there that's really earth shattering that's teaching that also the animations of it are really weird um it looks like toy story now like if you watch toy story with your kids now like 1996 cg animation is horrendous right um you know so the 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 visual experience of it is kind of weird it's subpar the the songs are obviously are are all like royalty free um that just but there's um when when someone talks about like a diet and it's like a diet and all you're eating is empty calories like that's basically what Coco Melon is to me. But kids love it. I think it's it's a this weird dopamine thing that's happening there. So Harriet watched a little bit of it, really liked it. I was so, you know, and this is the funny thing. This is like some some 90s like conservative Christian parent that's like banning Disney in their home. Yeah. You know, like it's probably harmless. I don't think anything bad is going to happen to Harriet, but because I'm such an elitist punk, I want my kid to watch like good stuff. I blocked Coco Melon from every because on Netflix and on some of these profiles, you can block individual wow. shows. This is good. This is like yeah. a parenting workshop for me Jeremy this is really I'm this is I'm getting you know I thought I was gonna get some like some good advice for some watch advice from you today, maybe. Oh, we're going to talk close but, in a little but bit. But actually, I'm learning that I can block individual shows on Netflix, and this is the this is the real knowledge, man. Yeah. Oh, dude. So we block an absurd amount of stuff, like Boss Baby, like all these. Just, I mean, it's just like drivel show for kids. Um, and also like we're pretty choosy over what we let her yeah. watch, you know. So a lot of these like Barbie TV shows that don't really do anything, or these shows that basically more or less do nothing but like right. sell toys again like to get on the Mr. Rogers thing where it's like like um what uh oh gosh Paw Patrol mm-hmm. I'm I I would openly declare war on Paw Patrol like what all that dude does is he just kits out his little <laughs> homie dogs with all these new gear all the time I who is who is bankrolling the Paw right. Patrol leader like I yeah I, I saw, I don't know if you saw Sorry. this when you were over there. I, I, I don't know here. if you saw this when you were over there, but I saw there was like a big thing that, that uh, Pitti Womo had like a, a dog clothes installation this time for the first time ever. There was like a dog area that was just to kid out your dogs. That's that's the world Paw Patrol has built is, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I didn't see that, but I wouldn't be shot. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised. I do want to talk about clothes. 
So like, when did clothes come into the picture for you? I think that the clothes I wore as a kid and the books I read as a kid, both like vintage, early vintage stuff. Shopper was my mom yeah. getting those at yard sales. Those those clothes have a have a big attachment to me. Uh, still, that stuff that that I wore as a kid. Um, but I don't think like the my like my origin story for really caring about clothes. I was living in L.A. and I just started writing picture books um, and had sold a few, but it was it, it was not enough to live off of. I couldn't. Be yeah. A what the what is the money like on these books? I'm not asking for numbers, but just like this is livable or. No, you get, especially when you're just starting off, it's a small advance and that's an advance against royalties, right? So they'll give yeah. you a lump sum, um, which I, is the, the back of the envelope math for them is always that it's what they think the picture book will earn in its first year. Um, but it, it really is, you know, when you're starting off and it may be right that that's what it's going to earn in the first year. It is, it's low money. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't start seeing royalties. You don't see any more money until you earn back that advance. So the author, the business side of this, the author and the illustrator split 10% of the cover price of the book. And so you have to earn back your advance basically like 80 cents at a time before you, you get 80 cents per book that oh boy. is sold. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I was not, I was not a full-time author and I was okay. running a nonprofit in LA called 826 LA. Um, and, uh, it, it's a place that teaches writing to kids. Um, and it's a great center. If anybody's looking for a place to donate their money, 826LA.org. Oh, what a good mission. Uh, <laughs> But are you I was, still, in I was it? The are you still involved? I am still involved. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. involved. Actually, it started up here in the Bay Area, eight two six Valencia, as as sort of like there's a little publishing company called McSweeney's that was uh, started by a writer named Dave Eggers. I don't know if you know I'm his familiar. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was my first job. I was an intern at McSweeney's uh, okay. and a substitute teacher. That was that was like straight out of college what I did. Um, I, I actually went to David Foster Wallace as I was graduating, and I was like, I'm moving back up to the Bay Area. I'm going to live with my mom. I need something cool to do up there that that uh, makes me feel like I'm not just back home living with my mom. Yeah. Uh, and he was like, you got to work at McSweeney's. There's good stuff going on there. And and that that uh, he was right. Uh, it's an amazing publishing company. And there was a nonprofit uh, attached to it at that point in the same building where every day kids come after school, get free help with their homework. But also like if a kid comes in and is like, I want to make a skateboarding video or publish a poetry chat book, we just say, yeah, and then we do it. And we have right. like professional authors and professional book designers and everything just makes this thing as good as possible. Um, so I was working at 826LA. I was running 826LA. I was the executive director of this nonprofit. Um, I was like 23, 24. And uh, I was dating, this is going to get very LA story at this point. I was dating an actress who was invited to the Vanity Fair Oscar party. Oh. Uh, yeah. Very fancy party. Like Graydon Carter days. Uh, yeah. and, and I, as a young nonprofit worker, I was freaked out, panicked, all of like my class anxiety activated. And I was like, how am I, this is a black tie party. I don't even know what black tie is. I don't know. Yeah. I freaked out. I was like, I'm going to embarrass myself at this thing. I really wanted to, I wanted to, to show up and, and be, be in the milieu. I wanted to, I wanted to do it right. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea how black tie worked. So in a panic, I went to a Barnes and Noble in West LA and, uh, and I pulled off the shelf. I went to like the clothing and fashion area and I got dressing the man 
Alan oh Flusser, guest of the pod. I pulled yeah. that off. I did not buy it. I couldn't afford it. I sat there with a notebook uh, next to a window, <laughs> and I took notes uh, from Dressing the Man. Okay. Uh, and his section on black tie and tuxedos, I got so excited. Like, I could feel my heart rate increasing. It's just like these signifiers, these things that I, I didn't know had meaning, where he was talking about, like, why a tuxedo shouldn't have notch lapels. Because um, that's for business, and this is... This is for yeah. for dinner, for for parties, for leisure, uh, and that you wouldn't wear a watch because it would be rude to imply that you had anywhere else to be that night. All this stuff, the way in which these now you do wear and, a watch, but like, now you I mean, do wear a watch. Ugh. Yeah, well, that, that's that stuff is very you know like anything else, as I'm sure you're aware. Like you learn the rules to break them, et cetera. Et that's cetera. right. That's all based yes, in nineteen thirties right. stuff too for the tuck stuff. But anyway. And 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 I think that like it was easy. Well, and it's the same thing with writing, right? And that was actually the the reveal here is that like it's like this is a language. This is learning yeah, a language. This is learning a form. There's like these choices that you're making are communicating something uh about yourself, your view of the world, every little choice. And even if you're breaking those rules, you're communicating something if you're doing it well by breaking that rule. So I got really excited. My like and probably, you know, a big part of when you first come into contact with all of these menswear rules, you are, you get way too into it and just <laughs> too, yeah. Ah, so, but I was like, I was really excited. I was like, here we're going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to nail uh, this, this tux. And I, and my girlfriend at the time, I could see she was getting very nervous. I was like, what, like, what is, what is this tuxedo project Mac is working on? Uh, and I think she thought that I was going to go way over the top. Now, one of the big ones was like, don't wear like the contempt for like LA black tie was at that time mm -hmm. was always uh, like dinner jacket and then a, a long tie, a long black tie. And like everything was like, you got to go bow tie. You got to go bow oh, tie. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, I, I, I held that close. And then uh, you know, my girlfriend, she was like, I, I talked to my stylist. Uh, and Okay. Asked, so she had a stylist. So she had a stylist, you know, and I know, and I know I'm talking to a, a former stylist right now, Jeremy. Failed stylist, and, and, but go ahead. Yeah, well, and and the, I got to warn you, the stylist is going to be the villain in this story. Yeah, because... most are. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> So she was like, she was like I was talking to my stylist, and and he actually had like I, I said like oh Max putting together a tux, and so he had some ad advice, and he just thinks that that you should wear uh, a long tie. Don't go in this bow tie thing. You're gonna look over the top. Uh, and it's Vanity uh, Fair. I know, but like, what did I know? And against what? Ugh. My, and you guys still Jeremy, I, obviously. I, I it sounds like fit. you're not together I, with her anymore. We're not together. We're not well, together anymore. I bricked yeah. the fit. I bricked the fit. It's, <laughs> it's, I, I'm wearing like a shawl collar okay. jacket. It's, it's nice. Oh, it's a, little a shawl too big. collar it's, with a long tie. Oh, with a long tie, my man. It is bad. It's that like, I, I sometimes I'll see, I'll see the picture and I'll just say like, that's not what you didn't, why, why didn't you should have, you should have just, you knew, you knew to, to wear a bow tie. But that, that, by the way, also. Best strip. That was like the year Peter O'Toole was like uh, up for an Oscar. I think maybe one. Anyway, he was at the party wearing this like beautiful burgundy brocade. The, the best dressed, like truly, I've never seen anybody wear clothes like that. And and I was like, maybe, maybe if you if you listen to your heart, 
when you're an 80-year-old man sitting on a fountain, you will be able to wear clothes that way. But uh, that sort of unlocked it. Like the, It totally reinvigorated my interest in clothes. Like clothes as language. Um, that all The thought that was going into these design decisions. Um, right. I think it felt so close to writing to me. That I, I just, I, I, and, and to expression. I, I saw the thought that, that designers were making, that manufacturers were making. And, and then the way that, that I could harness that stuff into expressing things about myself when, when I put the stuff on. It was really cool. Um, and that's where I got into it. Damn. And I have like a compulsive, like I still buy tuxes compulsively now. I was like, that's my... Yeah, There's many like, things to buy compulsively. I never thought I, I, never thought I would hear uh, you say a tux. It's, I mean, I think it's probably because of that, that, the deep trauma of my origin story <laughs> that we just revealed. Right? You, must, like yeah, you must redeem. Yeah. Never <laughs> there, there's your kid's book. Buying, you know, buying a never-ending amount of tuxes to yeah, fix the yeah, one time. Maybe we can do, maybe we can t- <laughs> talk to Alan about dressing for kids, you know, dressing the man, kids edition. Yeah. Oh my God, that'd be hilarious. I'm sure you'd love that. <laughs> um, so, so you, you get that you, you uh, are still buying these tuxes and <laughs> where, where's, where's everything else come in now? Because I mean, I've seen you, you're wearing some white, you're wearing, you know, you're, what have been the brands that you've been into lately? I love, I think that like, I love Battenware, um, yeah. out here in California, a lot of their stuff just connects to the stuff I was talking about that I loved as kids, uh, as a kid. Growing up in California in the Bay Area, like corduroy OP shorts. Oh, yeah. Rugby shirts that like were not like a, a preppy statement, but were just what like cool hikers and rock climbers wore. Mm-hmm. All that stuff. Um, Battenware does so well. It's just this this connection to what like since I was five that I thought like the coolest guys wore. Uh, yeah, I and- mean, Battenware is, a, that's a good shout out too. Because I mean, that's like the, the like any other Japanese run brand, they do American style better than any American brand. I mean, yeah. he would argue he is an American brand, which he is, but it's like a lot of those, you know, like engineer garments and uh, battenware and all these things that there's a, there's a lot of overlap of friendliness there. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I think that's right. And, and I think that EG and all that family, I, you know, I love that stuff too. Battenware <laughs> plugs into this, like this West coast thing, this California oh, yeah. thing that I, that, that I love and feels like an equivalent spirit to, to some of that. Um, I love Drake's. Those are probably my like two poles, like, like California surf and skate. And then just full English. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and let's see. Tender. I love Tender. Do you know, do you know that? Yeah. That, I love that guy where it's just like, here's a sweater that was made by the breed of sheep that was kept by Queen Elizabeth. I dyed it <laughs> in a creek with acorns. Yeah. yeah. A lot of menswear is also very good storytelling where you're like, I, what's the difference between these 10 sweaters? Well, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> yeah. They're all Queen from- Elizabeth sheep made this one. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And there is. I feel like there's like there's there's like there's storytelling. There's like the storytelling guy like you like Ralph Lauren is like the great American novelist, right? Like that is just America that is just a grand fiction about America that has been created over decades and and shown back to us. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's an amazing fictional project. Uh, and and it's good. It's good writing. It's it's incredible. It's great storytelling. And then there's that storytelling that that is sort of like the the story of the garment itself, how that garment was made. I'm super susceptible to that, to like the the tender storytelling. But that stuff is real too. That's like I think yeah. that like and eventually you get like another brand I love, 316. And like part of that is I think that they're great storytellers, but part of what the the 
storytelling that they do is just that like they show you how that garment was made, why they made it. And I just know that like everything, I can trust the decisions they make. I can trust them to make something well and to do it intentionally and thoughtfully. And I can do that because I've watched the story of how they've put various pieces together. Uh, the trust that yeah. comes into that. 316 is definitely doing really well right now too, because I feel like they're they're the perfect size of brand to, you know, patronize. They yeah. obviously they have great product. Um and you know, Johan and Andrew those guys know what they're doing. They're enthusiasts. They're, you know, there's passion behind all the stuff that they're making. But I think now more than ever, people don't really want to patronize brands as much as they want to patronize people or the people of the brands. So mm-hmm. knowing that like, you know, you can get some 316 jeans or whatever. And if you have a question, you can reach out to more or less the owner of the company and, right. you know, or an owner of the company and have a bit of feedback about a bit of dialogue. Like you can't do that at Gucci. Like you can't yep. do that at Dior. You can't, you know, and also a lot of those companies, they're never going to make some sort of video or expose about how their products are made. Um, Not because it's bad. I mean, when you look at like textile development from stuff like a Dior or any LVMH brands, like there's serious knowledge and, and investment and stuff stuff in there. But it's like, for them, the more they tell you, like Ralph is a perfect example of this. Like they're, I, I doubt you'll ever see, uh, you know, how they make their cashmere sweaters. And that's like the staple, the cable right. knit, right? Because for them, just buying it from Ralph is enough. Yep. And they're so, so big, you know, that I think people will still, they get a bit of a pass that everyone's always going to love them, like including myself. But like, yeah, the storytelling now, is building the brand rather than bingo. the storytelling of how the, they built the bingo. garment. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You said yeah. it much more succinctly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's people love these kind of like, I don't, I'm not belittling any of these brands, but these kind of like medium sized or smaller brands, you know, like Peter White is a perfect example where if you email, he's probably going to see it and he's, you know, making stuff. And I feel like people also, they want to, they really want to directly support those brands, you know, yeah. and, and there's this like new desire for empathy across the board with everything. And I don't know if it's a, it's a COVID thing or what, but just like knowing that your purchase is actually helping them and you're getting from that too. And it's a much more limited product. Um, yeah, it ticks every box. I wonder like if that is a COVID thing because we we saw a similar thing with independent bookstores too. Where, oh, yeah. Where, yeah, independent bookstores had had a hard... I'm done with Amazon. I'm all right? bookshop. Yeah. yeah, you've got some great... You're in St. Louis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you hit? Novel Neighbor? Do you ever go there? That's a great yep. shop. Yeah. Yep. I I think that I think that people did think like okay like who do I want to who do I want to exist like what shops do I want on my street what 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 companies do I want to keep going I I think that the the stakes just got raised for everybody right and and suddenly people were conscious of the fact that they were they were going to be able to keep people afloat through a hard time by by choosing where they spent their money carefully well and that and I think the one of the one of the little blessings for lack of better term of the the trauma of the pandemic um and the still trauma of the pandemic is there has been this um bigger awareness of community and loneliness and i think when people talk about mental health and stuff like that like now more than ever people are a little bit more okay with recognizing that they don't want to be alone we've kind of been somewhat messed up by our phones because you you know i when I was in Italy, I was waiting in line for something and I'm standing next to these older guys and they're just looking around. They're not doing anything. And then yeah. I look in front of me and there's some younger folks and they're head in their phone. 
And I rec- even myself, I was like, well, I have, I have 45 seconds while I wait in line to board this airplane. I bet I should just go on my phone and go on Instagram. And it's, it's so, so it's automatic. Like, it is. It's yep. so automatic. And, and I recognize too, I'm like, oh my God, like I'm a really lonely person. Like I, I crave community more than, yep. I mean, geez, I do a fucking podcast for a living, but it's just like, I, like, I just want to speak with someone and everyone yep. now like really wants to communicate full transparency in their life and their emotional state. And you see that stuff happen. And I think that's really affected consumer purchasing too. I mean, Michael Williams talks about that a lot too. And like his, newsletters and where it's like go to a store go to the bookstore talk to them like get recommendations like i would love you know and i i love apple tv i love netflix i love all the streaming services but like i was watching seinfeld the other night and they're at a video store and they're getting videos from individual people that picked it out and i'm like oh yeah i remember that yep like a local person who lives a similar life that i do is gonna you know because then also my opinion can be challenged like when was the last time someone you respected was like challenging your opinion and you didn't take it in a hostile way. Like, holy moly. Like that's, that's how like real communities are grown is there's, there's a tiny bit of friction because there's a healthy respect. That's right. Yeah, no, that's it. No, that's exactly. I mean, that that's exactly what I was trying to get to with like Sesame street and these, this kid's writing is exactly that acknowledging that friction, that not painting this is it's so easy to get along together that like, yeah, disagreement, conflict, tension, friction, that is the way of society. It's 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 how it has to work if we're all going to be ourselves. Oh yeah, and and also I think that's the thing too. There are people their natural personalities are probably going to make others bristle. And yeah. I I think in some cases, especially from, you know, have going through my fair share of therapy, a lot of times you don't some people will will lean on that by saying, "Well, this is who I am." Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. I'm just the loud rambunctious dude. I'm sorry if I tell it how it is. And we got into this, I mean, not to try to get political, but like we got into this thing of like wokeness, right? Where people were not pro or anti or any of these other things, but it's like, you just say, this is who you are and you expect people to adapt to you. But what you recognize is real community and real relationships are formed by the compromise of yours and their personality for a harmonious relationship. Like that's what happens. Great that you're a rambunctious asshole, but you learn how to adjust your personality to have a healthy relationship with an individual who might bristle at your, you know, whatever your uh, absurdities and obscenities are. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, how do we accommodate each other? Yeah. How do we compromise? How do we accommodate each other? How do we live in that moment of discomfort? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Versus now it's like, I say how it is and that's who I am. Or... I hide all of who this is because I don't want, you know, I don't want to offend anyone where it's like, no, 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 we can all exist. And like, maybe you just chew really loud. Maybe that's a part of your personality. How do we adjust the fact that you chew really loud so that everyone wants to eat with you still? Like what, you know, like that's a, that's okay. That's totally okay. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry. I called out the loud chewers, whomever they might be listening to the show openly. Yeah. Smacking Apologies their to big all of our chew. loud chewers out there, especially especially <laughs> the patrons. Yeah, especially exactly. Our loud someone's patrons. Yeah, someone's gonna be real pissed. <laughs> but Kirkland cancel. <laughs> um, but that's that's great. So okay, so you're in all those other brands. What you know, you I'm sure you got the Apple TV check. What what was the game changer? What if are you are you jumping into a watch? Are you? It's so you funny. Upgrading the house? Okay, so so this is Jeremy. I got to talk to you about this because it is. So John and I talked about the when. <laughs> When we first thought that we had sold the show, and it turns out that at that point we were overestimating our, right, our right. chances of selling the show, uh, we we t- 
took ourselves out to like a steakhouse in in Midtown Manhattan, and right. and we were like, let's have lunch here. This is our new life. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. This is it now. It's all steakhouses in Midtown from here on out. And we said, like, we're like, we have to get some watches. We're going to celebrate. Oh, that was what okay. we're going to do. Uh, the, that was like, it, it was another six years before we even sold the show. <laughs> uh, so we were, we were way premature on that. But we've been talking about it a little bit. Now, here is my problem. This is, okay. So, Jeremy, check this out. Uh I have a kid. You can see I I got I've got an <laughs> Apple Watch on right. Yeah, here. I've got an that Apple. That is the new Apple Max Pro Watch, whatever it is. Yeah, I it's don't the even... Iron Man Extreme Cool Guy. Yeah, yeah. All right, this is so. Yeah. Yeah, and you know me. You know yep. me, Jeremy. I'm an Iron Man extreme cool guy. Yeah. Uh, I actually, so I have type 1 diabetes. And so, especially at night, but just at all times, I have to monitor my blood sugar. Mm -hmm. Apple Watch is very useful for this. It's much you more have useful the, than my phone. The thing on I your, do. the Bluetooth? Hell yeah. yeah. So okay, I, that's awesome. I have basically like a Bluetooth apparatus band-aided to my body at all times. Uh, diabetes involves a lot. It's... There are a lot of there are a lot of sartorial uh, decisions that sartorial. have to be made. Yeah, I agree. Uh, You're right. A good a buddy of mine has it too, and and it's it's thrown him for a tailspin on a lot of different a lot of different ways. I think because people have been so I don't know. In some ways, it's like any sort of uh, terminal sort of ill. It's yeah that we, you know the good stories and the bad stories, and I think people uh it's it's almost too household name that people forget about. The, yeah, the, it yeah. actually yeah I think that's right. That and like I think that you your mind goes to all of the catastrophic stuff but actually what the experience is it's just like a lot of chronic inconveniences so like for me I always need to have access to my belly in order to give myself a shot so that affects mm -hmm. like what I'm wearing and how I'm wearing it uh, I've got this this thing that is it, like with adhesive on my arm and I always have to be careful about like I'm I wear looser fitting clothes probably now than I used to which is not a bad thing uh, sure. as, well you look like as, you're healthy and in, and in yeah. good shape so yeah, yeah nothing Thank you. Thank you so much. I, for, you know, if our podcast listeners don't know what a <laughs> specimen I am. So, so I appreciate you putting that out there, Jeremy. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the other thing is like, you got, you always got to know what your blood sugar is and you don't want it to go too high or too low. Um, and this Bluetooth thing talks to my phone, but if my phone buzzes in my pocket, uh, I might not feel it. And also the la man, I don't, as soon as I, if I go check my blood sugar on my phone, just like you in line, well, now I'm on Instagram. Now I'm in my email. Yep. Now I'm on yep. my phone. Uh, so the watch has been a blessing in that sense uh, because mm -hmm. it just is like, it, it just buzzes. I know what my blood sugar is. I can eat some gummy bears or give myself a shot. But it's probably not the watch that I would wear if you go to the I had my druthers. But I do have to wear it now. Jeremy. Double wristing with an Apple Watch. Get the opinion. I want it right now. I want to. I, I want to. I'm all for double wristing. Are you, I, I think it's totally fine. Yeah. I think you know um, most of the time that people are buying a watch. I think it's fair to admit that you're buying this as an achievement, as a status symbol. It's no different than a car or a piece of jewelry or any item that you want to purchase to commemorate something. Yeah. Um, some might be more functional than others. Whether it's a piece of art that you look at or it's a piece of art on your wrist you wear. I I think it's totally fine. And I'm all for being more open with that conversation than people being like, no, I, I, I buy because it's functional. Like, no, you're not a diver. No, even my yeah. diver friends don't dive in diving watches. And when they do, they still <laughs> wear a dive computer with their diving watch. Like, so it's it's okay to admit that it's out it's out the window. Um, none of us that I'm aware of are in active military duty. And the ones that I do know that are in active military, they have like some sort of 
specialized defense contractor Garmin thing anyway. So admit that you're getting this as a achievement. Right. So if this is the equivalent of updating your bathroom or your Viking stove, you just want to wear it on your wrist. Congratulations. That being said, it's cool to still wear an Apple Watch. Put it on your other wrist. As I was talking to you, I had an Apple Watch on that I took off because I wear an Apple Watch almost all the time at home solely for the fact that I can go and do other things or I go to the gym every morning. Yeah. No one's going to go to the... There was a guy, I went to this gym and he always worked worked out in a Rolex Submariner. And I I called him on it. Like, I mean, we we like would work out together like this. I was at like a little gym where it was kind of like a CrossFit thing. So you're talking to each other. And I'm like, homie, like, why are you working out wearing like 15K on your wrist? And he was like, this old thing. And I was like, nope, you know what it is. Or else you wouldn't wear it. Like, don't yeah. say this old thing. Yeah. And he was like, no, he's like, because I like it. And I was like, but also, here's the thing. If you're lifting weights, if you're doing any sort of like real physical activity, the size of your wrist is being altered throughout the entire experience. Like I was lifting earlier and it's, you know, I'm not like flexing hard, but like you can feel your wrist. So you can't wear, so there's no point in wearing a fucking Rolex or anything like that while you're working out. And I think it's so dumb that people do it. Yeah. This is all a very long rant to say, if you want two watches, get two watches. I came and, here for the rant. I came here for the rant. <laughs> this is. But you have the biggest of big. Apple watches. I That's do have the, the biggest. Bit. I know. I know. I, <laughs> this I had is the little a little one. guy. I had a little guy, uh, and then and then I got the. I got like the blade. Do you do the edition. action stuff? Yeah. Do no, you do I don't sports? do any action stuff. No, I walk my dog. So I what? Do, what I, do, I've done, I have a New Year's resolution to do yoga. I've been to three yoga oh, sessions. Welcome. That's yeah. Okay. That's uh, go for Iyengar. I think that yeah. yeah the divine light in me uh, acknowledges the divine light in you. Uh, uh, thanks. Namaste. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, the the yeah. But I I do the design factor. I have to say I like I this. It does look like some sort of like Blade Runner computer to me, and that's. Mm-hmm. And then he's in the watch face I'm putting up now too is like having this oh, sort that, of that's like, a big boy. Yeah, like I, I put like a DOS green uh, <laughs> background on it, so it just feels like I feel like it's like a you know a watch that was sent back in time to to 1985 so that somebody could save the future. <laughs> That's what yeah, I. That's I mean, what I fitted this one out like. I I would agree. I mean, it could be easily some something from Minority Report, which is yes. always the most futuristic movie anyone can reference. Absolutely. Um, the yeah, I mean that the Apple Watch Ultra, the one that you're wearing, like I think I, it's a great watch. The display is incredible. They're awesome. But yeah, throw that on your other wrist and then get you know I don't know what sort of uh, I don't know if you got a, a, a multi season deal or what you have. Not yet. Um, but but, if, but you know but it, but if our listeners out there just you know just put it on and leave the room. And uh, and maybe maybe we'll get that multi season deal. Yeah, th- yeah. There you go. There you go. Um, I mean, I think you should. The I tell everyone like have a budget of what you want to spend, and then go from there. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you can if you're especially someone who likes clothes, you can just talk yourself up to it. A friend of mine was like, I want to get a watch, and I was like, okay. And he his first watch that he got was like uh basically close to fifty grand a lange, which I right. think is like a beautiful watch, but I think it is like the least if you're getting your first nice watch. To get a, I mean, he got a 50K, uh, you know, long, a beautiful honey gold watch. I mean, it is just overkill. Like right. get a car. Yeah, that's not going to be us. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, But like, I, I think a Tudor Black Bay, I mean, which I tell everyone, I think that's probably the easiest watch that you could wear. You could also like live, you could get robbed 
God forbid, you could all those things. They're totally fine. Yeah, they're pretty easy to get. Um, I mean, I think Grand Seiko is really, really great. I mean, yeah. I talk about them all the time. But some people are like, "Nope, this is my first watch. I want to tell more people in the room that this is a nicer watch." Now, very unless you go to a watch hand. Sorry, Grand Seiko homies. Like, it's just it's a different sort of thing. And Omega Speedmaster. Yeah, is a great when we're watch. talking about what you're communicating, it's good. I, but I do. I love Seikos too. I know John. John also does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, Tudor I Black have, Bay, Tudor Black Bay. This is good. I'm taking notes. Yeah. I mean, I think a Tudor Black Bay is really good. Um, I literally have one here. Um, I would get, I'd get this one. This is the Black Bay that actually has a blue dial. Oh, that's beautiful. It's probably not going to look very. I can send you pictures later. But yeah, like this is. I mean, it's a super great watch, and it's small enough. Um, I think there's. This is like you know the 58 is nice and small. The otherwise you get the larger one in there. But like the profile is pretty nice on your wrist. But like the best thing is like go to a place and try them on. Like that's what yeah. I tell everyone. It's like if you're gonna get into clothes. You're going to go and try on a bunch of different stuff to find out what you like. You know, yep. for some people, like, they're like, I want a Rolex Submariner. Like, the new Submariner is, I think it's like 41. It is it is big. The bracelet is big. Mm-hmm. The height of it is big. I don't know how big you are or, like, what your wrist size is. But, like, if you are about a 7-inch wrist, a 40-plus millimeter watch on a 7-inch wrist is large. It takes a lot of space. And you might hate it. Yeah. So, like, is the sub even worth it? Some people want to get vintage. I never recommend buying vintage for your first watch I think that's probably not the best idea because that's so you interesting watch. yeah why not because you're gonna live in it yeah. and if, if you're gonna get real vintage like yeah. nice nice vintage you're gonna have to be it can't be the watch you wear 24-7 right it just can't yep. because like a good vintage watch the dealer might say hey you can swim in this you probably mm-hmm. can't right any even though it's serviced and some of those things you know and someone's gonna DM me and be like well I have a I have a sub from the 70s that I swim great okay but like when you look at the value that you're investing and all these other things that you want to get out of it and also if it's your first watch i think there is some truth to it like you want you to be the first person that has it right like that's the whole point if we're gonna if we're gonna turn these into fake mementos and fake you know memories or ebenezers or whatever we want to call them right like knowing that some potential moron had it before you he she they whomever yeah i don't want some bad bad vibes on my wrist yeah 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 what if (laughs) i mean who knows yeah uh so get a new one um, and it, if you want to get vintage, get vintage. But like, that's like your third, fourth, fifth watch if that happens. But yeah, I'd get something easy to get something. I think an Omega Speedmaster is great. Um, yeah. I think there's totally cool stuff if you engrave the back. Yeah. Hell yeah. I think that would be really fun. I think that stuff, like like you say, whereas like that's sort of that's sort of attached to the be the first one to wear it, to start investing it with that history to yeah. to, to make it yours. And, and maybe I, I maybe that, you'll give it to Rafe. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. And actually, you know, it would be really nice too uh, because we started writing the show like the week he was born. It was a wild thing where uh, I always know how long we've been working on the show because it's we got greenlit when Rafe was born, which was which was a little scary time. Yeah. Did you get any time off? Uh, I guess, he, you know, he was a COVID baby. So uh, okay. it was it was just sort of uh, my wife, Taylor and I were, were both working from home and, and she wasn't she wasn't working at that time. But uh, right. even as her maternity leave was sort of ending uh, that that period, it was just sort of a mess, but a really fun mess of of just all being in the same room 
uh, working on stuff. Yeah, because he's you said he's five months or twenty months. He's twenty months old. Yeah, twenty months. Okay. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So is he out? Is he sleeping in your guy's room? No, it's really it's so funny because he is now he's he's got the toddler bed, uh, and so okay. he can get in and out of bed. Uh, and this is like a okay. recent thing, but he won't do it. The psychological barrier is there. Ooh. He can't like in the morning he won't do it. He he'll go in and out of bed all day long, but in the morning he still waits for us to come in and say like you can come out now. So that's like uh oh, do you have one of those red light green light lamps or something? No, we don't have any of that stuff it's just all like oh. he, he's just all in his own head about this I know it's like we don't have that much longer truly we may have like three or four days left of him not just busting the door open and and walking around the house but like for right now he is like I'm just supposed to stay in here uh and yeah do you have you. the door closed you, his door is closed yeah yeah but that, he can open I, we it. Were he told, can open that door yeah we were told that you should have your kid's door closed for fire code and I was like really is but that so right? I don't know what is right I mean not to be a curmudgeon but like yeah so uh yeah we we close Harriet's door yeah um but she only recently and she's five yeah only recently does she get up and she will she'll wake up on her own she'll get dressed on her own um she's still in like a pull-up at night like a night pull-up you know but then she'll uh she'll just wake up and she'll i'll be in the i'll see her in the living room because she's like a compulsive artist she does nothing but draw we go through reams of paper yeah um yeah so she'll be up drawing with her markers in the living room and then it'll be like eight o'clock yeah. And we're asleep because we were up with Russ or something. And so then she'll come in the bedroom and be like, hey, like, can someone make me breakfast? And sometimes she'll just go in the pantry and she'll get like these stupid fig bars and these little whatever organic crap snacks that we have. And she'll just load up on those for breakfast. So yeah. I'm trying to like be, you know, a proper adult and like set an alarm or be like, hey, when you wake up, come in the room. And, and like, I, I would love to get up with you and watch something or yep. cook breakfast together or whatever. Um, So I, I take the responsibility. But yeah, she's just like, I'm just going to go do my thing, dad. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, that is cool. There was like, I, I remember I was like, I did not like to wake up early. But on Saturday mornings, I would wake up really early to watch cartoons. Like that was the only. Yeah. Yeah, because I was like, that was when the good stuff was on. We couldn't stream it, right? Like it was like the yep. good. So that like waking up at like 6.30 or 7, being up alone, like bringing blanket down, making my own cereal. Like the world is so magical then. Like I'm the only one awake in this house. Yeah. I, I made breakfast. That's the Montessori stuff, though. Too It's like that's they all probably tell not. You, like, then hey, taking have... your breakfast to watch Ninja Turtles is probably yeah. at that point the Montessori method has been exploded. Yeah, yeah it ends as Shredder <laughs> is going nuts and all the corporal punishment is happening on TV. Yes. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, I, I agree. It's it's probably not in there with your your sugar loaded. You know, you know it does affect you. You know, it was Lucky Charms, and I was not eating the non marshmallows. Oh yeah, Marbits. Only one place. One one place in Marbits for the whole world. Thanks thanks to my father in law. There you go. Yeah. Oh man, Lucky Charms, Cinnamon Toast Crunch, Captain Crunch tearing up the roof of your mouth. Those mm-hmm. were the days. This is like this is this is this is diabetic walk through memory lane right here. This is. Here's an honest question. Yeah. Like as you have become your own level of adulthood and success, you know, 
whatever, however you want to frame that. Have you like reclaimed some of your childhood things to where like my older brother, he, you know, we didn't have a ton of money when we were growing up. So we didn't really have like good cereals. It was always generic or whatever. Mm -hmm. And his thing now is no matter what, he's like, I will buy the OG cereal brands. Right. Instead of the generics. Yeah. He's like, it's, it's, that's like, he will always do that. Yeah. Like, do you have any situations like that? Oh, that's such a good question. I, you know, I was like that about cereal for sure. I wonder if that's a similar thing. I wonder it's just like growing up on generic cereal as a kid because that is one thing man the the store brand was nothing like the brand name a a lot of times you know soap or whatever yeah sure (laughs) but cereal those that generic cereal could not compete it did not taste the same uh i i was on a big i was i was a big like sugar cereal adult for sure that was actually a big thing that my wife and i when we were dating that we would do late at night is just go down to the grocery store and load up on sugar cereals and it was like it, it was it, i think it was like yeah it was it, it was it was writing a wrong it, it was the equivalent of owning three tuxedos <laughs> yeah wait do you seriously have three tuxedos yeah <laughs> I know, it's so dumb. Well, do they all fit? Yeah. Hey, man. But you don't need three. Nah, it's okay. I like it. I'm not, I, look, I, I understand where it's coming from. I understand, I understand why I do, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and now you know. So what, I, are they three the same or do you have like no, a shawl, a one button they're key? they're different. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I have, I have a midnight blue shawl collar, Isaiah uh, wow. guy. Right. Then I've got like a, like a, just a vintage 1960s mohair guy that that I got in a shop in Atlanta. Um, wow! And then and then uh, and then another one that's sort of like a uh, like sort of a mess jacket kind of thing, like high up here and no tails. Uh, and 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 that's the that's the third guy. It's all no vent, I assume. No vent. Yeah, you're right. No vent. Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, yeah. you're so you're ready for all the all the award show stuff if, now. You know, if I'm invited to. Th- Three different galas on the same night, and it would be humiliating to see mm-hmm. the same outfit. I'm ready sure. for that. I'm re- invite me you to are. your galas, is what I say, and I will not wear a long tie to any of them. Or even then, like I mean, I have buddies who are doing award stuff now, like you know, like as we're recording, and they had something for Critics' Choice. They have something for. Right the DGA, they have something for uh, the Globes, they have, you know, all these different things, like, no way, they they were like, I can't wear the same outfit. Now, some of these things you can wear suit, others you, and especially now with Hollywood stuff, where someone's like, you know, one person was talking to me, they're like, yeah, I'm gonna wear a tux, but like, don't you think it'd be cool if I wore a t-shirt? And I was like, no. Right. It's, it's okay to look, it's okay to look like everyone else, but I think some of these people, it's like, I wanna have my own statement, like, I'm gonna wear Jordans with the tux, and it's like, cool, Boys to Men did it too. Like, right. You know, do, you, do your thing. I think, I think all those things are fine, but like I would never do the t-shirt tux move. No, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I agree. I think that I think that like yeah, it's fun. Obviously, it's like it's and you just got to mean it, right? Ultimately, I mean, well, you say well, we say that we say you've just got to mean it, but then we would both be looking at the t-shirt guy the same way. Oh yeah, yeah. You can say like, look, if he's comfortable and that is his personal <laughs> style, then then we applaud that. But but <laughs> we would we would really be like, I don't know about that t-shirt. Yeah, shoes are one thing. 
Yes. I think that's totally fine when people yeah. change up the shoes. But yeah, the t-shirt. And even say say somehow in the future, I'm at an award show and Tom Cruise is there. Yeah. Big TC. I He's love like, hey, this. Jeremy, I love this on? hypothetical. I'm on Mission Impossible 36. Yes. Um, and uh, you know, and he rolls up and he's in his tux and he's in a he's in a t-shirt tux. Yeah. I would say like, okay, but I probably still in the back of my head would be like, but you're Tom Cruise. Right. You're you know, you're trying to you're trying to carry the torch for the, you know, whatever Hollywood. He's old carrying guard. Hollywood on his back. Yeah. Top Gun, all this Top stuff. Top Gun saved movies. Top yeah. Gun was so good though. I did love Top Gun. Top Gun, I I I like Top Gun, but I also there was a few parts that maybe my emotional maturity wasn't as strong that I laughed at like dramatic moments. That I, I was like, laughed seriously? at dramatic moments, especially at the opening. But like I, I felt like the like I felt like the laughs I was having, like the writer would have been like, yeah, it is fun. Like I had this like that opening where they're like, okay, check it out. TC <laughs> Maverick. Yeah. The the Pentagon is shutting us down. But <laughs> they're shutting down this secret plane because yeah. they needed to get to 10. Mm-hmm. And we can only get it to eight. Now, the coolest thing anybody has ever done in the world in planes is 10. In fact, nobody's ever done 10 before. And you're like, it's just the number 10. They just chose the number 10. It's so oh, brilliant. Yeah. It's so good. And then as he's strapping in, his best friend is like, listen, when you get up, if you make it to 10, don't take it to 10.3. And certainly don't take it to 10.4. Yeah. It's perfect. I was laughing so hard, but I was also like, this is good. This is good. Yeah. I mean, it's literally like a an eight-year-old's winning, you know, like, tell us how you win the game. Yeah. Well, here's how I won the game. They yeah. said I couldn't, and they didn't believe me. Yeah. And I tried. And I tried my and it hardest. it was hard, but I won. <laughs> You're like, oh, all right. Yep. Way to go. Yeah. Uh, I also felt like I, I, like, I feel like Maverick was probably supposed to die originally in the original version of that. This is just total speculation, but it feels like that is where all the narrative stakes were. And then I mm-hmm. feel like TC saw that script and was like, I don't die. I'm TC. <laughs> and he's right. He's right. I was so mad when James Bond spoiler oh boy died you're fine yeah at the end of what what was it called no time to die and then he died there was time there was time there was a lot of time to die. There was like 30, yeah. 30 minutes of dying. I was so I just thought it was mad. dumb that's like he has a next of kin. Now we're talking about Bond, where it's like, yeah, he's got a kid. Yeah. You know, and look, I I am all for, you know, I get it. A lot of people are like, Bond's too misogynist. He's such a playboy. He does it like, okay, fine. But also, this is the character that people still want to embrace. Yeah. So like I, I don't, I don't, I don't understand. So and actually whatever to, happens, like, to have him die the second he has a kid, I actually would be interested in Bond raising a daughter. Like, like that's not yeah. there's there's meat on that bone right there. Yeah, there is. Uh, there is. But we won't ever know what that's like because he died. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so mad. So I feel like TC was like, I'm not going to die. And then they had to like rewrite. This is the spoiler. We are in spoiler zone. Yeah, highway this to is the a whole spoiler, other pod. Highway to the spoiler zone. But like where they're like, basically behind enemy lines, we have found a hard rock cafe that has all the memorabilia from the original Top Gun, the original plane, all your original stuff. It is so at this stupid. hard rock cafe. If we just break into it, we can fly it. It's perfect. It's beautiful. Beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> that's 
So a buddy of mine, he's going to be so pissed when he hears this or whatever. He is a big James Cameron fan. Yeah. Huge James Cameron fan. And we have very similar taste in most movies, excluding James Cameron. Yeah. I respect James Cameron. Yeah. Um, I think Terminator 1 I and 2 is a great I love Terminator movie. 1. That's, yes. Okay. Now, the new Avatar, have, by the way. Yeah. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it. Have you seen it? Okay. Well, I mean. You can spoil it for if, me. You can spoil it for me. There's nothing to spoil. No. There's I really nothing to spoil. I, I will say here's, this is one. This is one part of so Avatar is like seven and a half hours long. Yeah, um, it's it is a visual roller coaster. It's beautiful. They're pushing the envelope, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. whatever visually. But if you have six hundred years, however long it took him to make this movie, mm-hmm. and four and a half billion dollars, however much money he spent, yes. to make this movie, imagine you're a storyteller. The importance of story, right? How narrative changes how how we can have empathy for villains, how we can or sympathy for villains. We can have um, just these wonderful connections that we never knew we knew how stories change our lives of redemption and joy and pain and and lust and all these things, right? Yeah. Now imagine that doesn't exist in this movie. Yeah. Because the movie is a complete tire fire where there's, I feel like there's a joke in the movie. There's a character in the movie who's a human who tags along with the Navi. Who tags along with the Navi. And I feel like it was a studio exec's son where someone was like, fine, you want all this money? You're putting Jimmy in the movie. No, I don't want to put your shitty son actor in the movie. He's he's in it. And I want him in every scene. And they're like, damn it. And so they put him in the movie. It's so bad. The same plot happens in the movie four different times (laughs) into which it's like, Oh yeah, well I got your kids. You better show up because I'm got. I want to fight you. Oh yeah, well I got them back. Oh dang. Oh yeah, well I got your kids oh, now. No. You better show up. This happens one, two, th- three times in the movie where it's like, come out. I'm not gonna hurt your kids, but we gotta settle this. No way. Oh, I got them back. Dang it. I got your kids. Like that's this. It's the whole fucking movie. Yeah. It's it's by far one of the the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. It just um, feels like I mean we all are good when we're working. Working within limits, and and James Cameron, you know Terminator, a lot of limits there. And clearly, this guy is just like there are just no more limits on it. When when you're going back for your like your next billion dollars from from the studio, like what? Yeah, how? Like what? And I assume if James Cameron ever met me and he heard my hot take, he would be like, you know what? I made all these pieces of art. You've never done anything, blah, blah. He could just crush me in two sentences. Yeah, no, he does not seem like a low-key guy. But one of us goes to bed every night and gets up in the morning and recognizes that they never had to make Avatar. And that's me. (laughs) I have the joy. There's no burden behind my back of just trash that is just falling behind me <laughs> um anyway i digress well this was great this was really good so really fun. good chat really good hang yeah i don't know but this was great it was it was an absolute pleasure dude jeremy me. this was so fun thank you it's like it honestly to uh, most of the conversations and podcasts and things i do are all just so in world with kids books so to like talk about them to somebody who's coming in contact with them and and reading them and 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 just hearing what it's like outside the world is so valuable and then just for me to get to talk to an expert in something that I care about is oh well, pleasure was all mine and so thank you for having me but it, it was great it was great to chat with you talk to you soon bye okay that's it for our show be sure to check out Mac Barnett's books everywhere in his new show Shape Island on Apple TV Plus you've been listening to Blamo our show is produced by Blamo Media we're edited by Amar Lal and our theme music as always by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you heard, you know the drill. Share the pod with a friend. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you do. Give us some of those five stars. Do the deals. Follow us on Instagram for all the hot content, whatever you want. If you want to talk to us and give us your hot take, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us 
at info at blamopod.com. And if you want to hang with us and join the Blam fam, visit patreon.com forward slash blamo, where we have tons and tons of exclusive episodes, including our exclusive shows from Blamo Presents Derek Guy to the Triple J Show, and also our incredibly amazing, wonderful, and just the best on earth Slack community. That's right. Okay, everyone, that's it for me. I will see you in a couple weeks.